Hello, everyone, and welcome to Me, You, Us, a well-being podcast. It's another Well-Being Wednesday here at Consumers Energy, and I'm your host, Bill Krieger. Today is the first part in a three-part series with my guest, Herb Elfring. He is a retiree from Consumers Energy. He is a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and also a survivor of Pearl Harbor as an Army veteran. So listen in as I have my conversation with Herb Elfring. For the audience, I had been talking with Carolyn Bloodworth, and she had mentioned uh, that you had worked at Consumers Energy, retired uh, 35 years ago, and that you are a survivor of Pearl Harbor. And I wanted to talk with you and uh, find out a little bit about who you are and, and what you did, not only at Consumers, but what it was like to be uh, at Pearl Harbor on that day. Before we get there, I'd like to kind of find out where you uh, started out, because from what I understand, you are not a Michigan native, but uh, you come from Montana. Actually born in South Dakota. Well, okay. So you originally come from South Dakota. I was born in South Dakota. Okay. Watertown on the farm in 1922, of course, and uh, uh, livelihood on the farm, of course, was Looking back on it, it seems like it was more or less day day by day because there was no extra. Right. And when the uh, dry years came in the early 30s, uh, it took us toll and uh, my dad was not able to raise enough money to pay the interest on the mortgage and we lost the farm. Uh, so uh, we lost that farm in 1932. And it broke up the family. I stayed with my uncle, and my sister stayed with some other uh, relatives. And, and then along comes 1933, and my sister heard about the uh, Fort Peck Dam project being authorized in Montana across the uh, Missouri River. And uh, it so happened that we had... Uh, my mother's sister's family lived nearby, and also my my grandmother, my my mother's mother, and so we. Uh, my dad got uh, through the, my sister's influence. Got got the family together with a with an old Buick that he still had for some reason, and a and a trailer. I guess we had left over from the sale of the farm. And headed for Montana. Well, now that sounds like a, that sounds like quite a journey. So, if I understand, born in 1922, the uh, stock market crashed, the depression hit. So, this project that you're talking about is now was that part of the what the CCC or the Civilian Conservation Corps? I don't think it had any direct connection with any of them. It was a it was a project that was probably in the mill all along. Say. In the early, early 30s, but finally got authorized in 1933. Okay. So we headed for Montana and stayed, got there with our Grapes of Wrath, uh, uh, and, uh, landmark, I guess you might say. And, uh, that was the days when the roads weren't Black topped and a lot of gravel roads and a lot of time on the road and we finally got there 
and got to my uh my aunt's place and she put us all up for for whatever reason you know <laughs> and then uh the the uh the dam was authorized to be built in the fall of nineteen thirty three and my father luckily was one of the first uh common labor help hired on the project and uh as a result we uh moved from my my aunt's place to a, a place closer to the project and uh that's where that's where I lived then until uh I uh went to the country school the eighth grade my first my schooling was in a one room schoolhouse for eight years uh, both in South Dakota and Montana well that must have been quite an experience that's everybody in the same room basically right yeah, from uh, kindergarten all the way up all the way up yeah oh my gosh so anyway uh, I graduated from the, the country school then and for, from which we walked to school a couple of miles every every day to school and back, you know. And in wintertime, it didn't make any difference. So uh, I, I started to high school then in Glasgow, Montana, which was about 12 miles from, from the project. Mm-hmm. So I would ride to work with my dad catch the bus, and then ride the bus to, to Glasgow about 12 miles away. So That's quite a journey every day, and that's every, in every, the winter, summer, whatever, yeah, right? every day, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, in Montana, the weather would get pretty severe in the wintertime. I, I experienced a couple of days of 63 degrees below zero in Montana. Okay, so i got to stop you there. Yeah. When you started to say 63, I thought, well, that's warm weather. And then you said below zero. I, I can't even imagine 63 degrees below zero. That's, that's, that's awful, cold. That's awfully cold stuff. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. But that's for a couple of days. And then it was only for, only did it happen one year that way. But, uh, I don't recall what some of the other cold days were, but they're well in the forties, you know. Mm-hmm. So you learn to live with it. <laughs> But uh, I would then ride ride to work with my dad, catch the bus, go to go on into Glasgow, Montana, to the high school, and I did that for two years, the freshman and junior year. I of course didn't have time to play, stay at school and play sports, so I did not uh, get involved with sports of any kind. Then, uh, as the project grew, uh, they were able to open up a, uh, a junior-senior class in high school at Fort Peck. So, I finished my two years of high school at Fort Peck, Montana. And I graduated in 1939. So, it sounds to me like education was pretty important in your family because it would have been very easy for you just to go to work uh, and contribute and not continue your yeah. education. Well, it's certainly uh, 
certainly I, something that I guess I had in mind because uh, my, my brother older than me did not go on to high school. You know, mm-hmm. he rather find a job and work someplace. You know, uh, so I graduated in 1939, and uh, my brother. Oldest brother was in the Navy, married, and lived in San Diego. And he he invited me to come to San Diego to go to San Diego State. Well, it just happened that there was a family that uh, was uh, living near the project that we heard about that wanted to go move to Sacramento, California. But they needed somebody to drive a small truck that they had along with them in the car and pulling a trailer, you know. So I wound up, I was uh, 17 years old at the time, driving that truck from Montana, Fort Peck, Montana, to Sacramento, California. Interesting, interesting coincidence, right? Yeah. It just so happens that... They're kind of headed your way, and they they needed your help. That's, yeah, right. That's pretty amazing. So, fortunately, we got there in one piece, and uh, then I caught a bus on to San Diego, California, from Sacramento, and wound up uh, starting to San Diego State as planned. And the uh, uh, well, as it turned out, it was in the uh, second term. Because I was short on, on math projects to qualify to start as a freshman at San Diego State. So I, uh, I worked for a Berkeley then as a hot carrier and took night classes in, in math in order to qualify to start San Diego State in, in January 1940. 1940. Uh, that all that all worked out okay. But while I was at San Diego State, I I, I was, got acquainted with a fellow that was uh, or a student that was in the National Guard, the California National Guard. Okay. And this would be 1940, uh, spring or early 1940s. So. And of course, at that time, you know, dollars were hard to find, and and we could go to drill on the weekend and earn an extra buck. And I actually had joined the National Guard in Montana when I was 16. Really? So was, what, what's that all about? Which, which was a common practice for young guys to do that, just to earn a little extra money, and mm-hmm. and they needed they needed the recruits anyway, so it all worked out. Anyway, uh, uh, I uh, went on to school then in the spring of 1940 at San Diego State and also did drills in the California National Guard on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, the regiment was uh, did their summer, summer uh, two weeks encampments, which happened to be up in Washington. So we... We went up uh, to uh, an area of Fort Lewis, Washington, and conducted our two weeks of drill up there. 
came back to San Diego, uh, that'd be probably in June of 1940. Then along comes September 16th, 1940, and the California National Guard was activated full time. So now I'm in the Army. Probably not what you were expecting. That wasn't, wasn't <laughs> expected at all. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we, we, the whole regiment then was, uh, pulled into a camp out there at uh, Ventura, California. And in November 1940, the whole regiment was deployed to, to Hawaii. Uh, the island of Oahu where, uh, Honolulu is. So again, probably not what you were expecting. No, not at all. <laughs> but, but not a bad thing, right? It's Hawaii. Well, fortunately, it was Hawaii instead of the Philippines. Yeah. Because had I, had the regiment gone to the Philippines, we probably would have wound up on that Bataan Death March. Mm-hmm. So we were in Hawaii then a whole year before the Japanese uh, uh, bomb Pearl Harbor, but that's probably, probably a kind of a misnomer in a way because the Japanese hit every other military installation on the island, which included our camp Malakoli, which was down, down the shoreline from Pearl Harbor, uh, a few miles. I don't know exactly how many. So, what were you doing in Hawaii? You know, I know things were heating up around the world with, with the war that was going on, but why did they activate you and how, why, why Hawaii of all places? I, I, I don't really, you know, as a, I was a buck private at the time. Well, that's true. They probably and, don't tell you these things. And, <laughs> and uh, totally new to the army, you might say. And, uh, uh, that, that theory never got down to my level, and I and I, I and as at that level, I guess we weren't too in, too inquisitive either at the time. So. Right. So, what did you do while you were there? Uh, so, prior to the well, the, uh, the regiment was made up of uh, batteries, and San Diego was battery A and was a search type battery. Uh, like Long Beach, I think they had uh, automatic weapons battery, and then uh, uh, San Francisco probably what was uh, it might have had the anti-aircraft guns, the big guns, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was. It was called the 251st Coast Artillery Anti-Aircraft. So he had those different. Uh, Weapons for anti-aircraft use. Okay. Yeah, I think our our intended use was was to defend airfields for the most part. So uh, uh, Japs hit Pearl Harbor, and of course the term Pearl Harbor survivor doesn't apply to just the Navy. Right. Which is interesting because when we think about Pearl Harbor, we think about the USS Arizona and we think about the Navy. Yeah. Um, so I was a little surprised to find out that you were in the Army. Yeah. Uh, 
But the Japanese knew where every military installation was on the island, and they 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 hit all of them. You know, Army, Navy, uh, Marines, the whole the whole gamut. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Wheeler Wheeler Field in the in the center of the island and Schofield Barracks. Uh, they they hit those. You know. So, uh, uh, you did not have to be a sailor to be qualified as a, as a Pearl Harbor survivor, in other words. Right. And that's, that's some education for me. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, my son, uh, probably 10 years ago, who was in the Army, uh, just like his dad, was stationed at Schofield Barracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure a whole lot's changed in all that time, although it might have gotten a little bit better. Um, it was, uh, from all accounts, it was a, a pretty, it was a nice place to be, but it was a pretty tough place to be as well. Um, it's a huge installation there. Yes. I don't know that. Yeah, they take up a lot of territory. <laughs> and there's, a, there's an aircraft uh, landing field there, too. So, so it's you're... It's called Wheeler, Wheeler Field, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you were in Hawaii, and you're doing your job. You're you're uh, uh, doing what you do there. And so, what 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 happened, kind of leading up to to the attack, and then what happened uh, during the attack? And, and well, as, as as time went on, uh, radar was just coming into existence at that time, and uh, we uh, the battery A. Obtained a, uh, uh, a radar at that time of that big and antennas, you know. Uh huh. And uh, it was used to pick up airplanes, but the but the uh, the uh, capability of it was limited to, I think, forty. 40,000 yards, which is not very far away. Oh, nothing compared to how far we can see out now. With right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, uh, 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 after we got to Hawaii in 1940, November 1940, why, uh, we started out in, in Pupton, or not tents, but, but t- Army tents at, at Schofield Barracks, and then, uh, we moved to Camp Malakoli, which is down the shoreline from Pearl Harbor, and built our own our own camp out of lumber, <laughs> All right. rough lumber, and uh, so that was called Camp Malakoli. And uh, uh, we would we would work building the camp in the morning, and maybe doing some army exercises of some kind in the afternoon, you know. And uh, that long went along just fine until uh, the Japanese hit on December 7th, 1941. Thank you to the audience for listening in today. If you want to hear the rest of this story, be sure and tune in next week as we continue our conversation with Herb Elfring. This is only part one of a three-part series. The Me, You, Us podcast is proudly sponsored by Consumers Energy, leaving Michigan better than we found it. Remember, you can find the Me, You, Us podcast on all major podcasting platforms. 
So be sure to go out, find us, and subscribe. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please contact the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you are a veteran or know a veteran who is in crisis, you can call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line. And remember to tune in every Wednesday as we talk about the things that impact your personal well-being.